It's time for real talk. I always seek to be real as a pastor uh, before you. My heart as a pastor is not to lord over anyone, but to really uh, lead as the Lord continues to grow me as a humble servant. Uh, and I know I have a lot of growing to do. And so it is with that understanding I try and I, I, I tend to be as transparent as I possibly can whenever I preach the word. And God oftentimes has a way of rebuking me uh, through the passage that he has sovereignly designed for us to be able to talk about or preach on that next week. And um, because of this text this morning, um, the tendency can be, and I did it at the beginning of the week, of approaching this and saying, listen, I already, I already know this. This really doesn't apply to me. Um, whenever we approach a text with that attitude, even though we've heard it a multiple, multiple times, it's always dangerous ground. Because we fail to see what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us. And we as Christians must always be growing and progressing in this journey that we have to become more like Christ. And so with this disclaimer, I share with you now a struggle that I had this past week. As many of you know, we are in full save mode when it comes to the efforts of saving for a building. And uh, this past week, I was struggling majorly, not, not struggling over whether or not God would provide. Because... Um, in the limited amount of Christian growth that I've had over the years, because I'm still pretty young, I've at least kind of somewhat figured a little bit of something out, and that is God always provides. Uh, I have had enough experiences in my life where I've seen that happen time and time again. Uh, Matthew 6.33, I shared this with somebody this past week. God says that if you seek the kingdom of God first, it's command, all these things will be added unto you. And within the context of that verse, it's talking about all the things we need, basic necessities of life, shelter, clothing, food. All right. He says, literally says, let the Gentiles, in other words, in that context, let those that are unsaved worry about those things because you, everything's taken care of for you. So everything that you need in order to live and to accomplish the will of God, it will be taken care of. Of, it will be taken care of it for you, and so therefore you don't have to think about it. And so I wasn't struggling this week over whether or not God will provide for us as a church. I was struggling over where God wanted me to go. Maybe you've been there before. Like you know God's going to provide, but you find yourself wandering in the wilderness of, okay, God, like I know you're going to provide. Like where do you want me to step next? You guys been there before? Like where do you want me to go next? And that's where I was struggling. And part of it was, I wouldn't even say, I'm gonna be honest, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't even say it was selfish. I was struggling in the fact that as a pastor, me being up front with you, I don't know where God would have us go next as far as a physical location. I, I don't know. I received a letter this past week, and none of it was new. I mean, it was, all, it was all like stuff we already knew about, but reading it before me became more real. But it was the lease amendment for our building, and the owner said that you have a month-to-month -month agreement until the end of this year, and then it added in there with a possible extension into January and February. I was holding on to the hope that maybe we could like just continue on staying in the building because the sales didn't go through. But basically, what it sounds like now when talking with the owner and seeing that letter, that they already have the contract done, but we're done at the end of this year. Like You have to have a place to go. Within that same letter, it added in there that if there's any major things that need to be fixed, you have possibly 30 days or maybe a little bit longer, but 30 days to be out of the building. And so the air conditioner breaks, which, again, keep adding that in there, which makes me concerned, uh, and then, or anything else, they're not going to fix it, which I totally get, but you have 30 days to be out of the building. And so it's all real. And so coming before this, and again, being up front with you, I have turned over every single rock that I know to turn over as far as purchasing a building. We have $130,000 in there. Most of you know the market. You're not buying anything anywhere near that. 
for, for $130,000 down payment. For what we need for our church, we need at least two to three to four million dollars to buy anything that would possibly work for our church family. Or uh, perhaps a church is shutting down and they give us the building. And so every single rock that I know to turn over, there's nothing there. I understand we're in May and we have a few months, but that's where I am right now. And so I approached this text this week with that in the background, and I was praying through these things. Lord, where do you want me to go? How do you want me to lead the church family? We're going to continue to raise money, but we're going to trust in what you want us to do. But Lord, just show me, like, which direction? Lord, do you want us to not worry about purchasing a building now, but perhaps go to a, an office space somewhere else if we're out of here and meet in a school like we did in the past? Like, is that where you're wanting us to go? And it's just like the direction where God was leading, I, I just didn't know where that was. And I approach this text here as we continue on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it was as if, like, God's like, Brandon, this is my encouragement for you now as you're struggling. And at first, as we read this, it's, it's one of those things where the Apostle Paul is really just giving a historical account of his relationship with the church in Thessalonica. And so we would read this and say, well, this doesn't really apply to me. He's given a historical background of his relationship with the church. But as you read through the lines of what he's trying to say and allow the Holy Spirit to teach you, what this passage shows us here this morning is really a reset of what the fundamental foundations of any ministry truly is. And this is the encouragement that our text has for us here this morning. And so take your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I do pray that this is an encouragement to you, just as it was and is, continues to be for me. As you looked at last week, just to kind of review the context of where we are, 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul. Matter of fact, it was one of the first letters he ever wrote, period. Some commentators say that it was an experiment in Christian writing because he had no other reference points to write. Uh, historians say that actually 1 Thessalonians is one of the oldest books in the entire New Testament. Uh, it's even older than a lot of the Gospels that were written. And so he writes this uh, letter to this church in which he founded with the help of Silas and Timothy. You see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, where it says the Apostle Paul with the Bible says Silvanus, which is Silas, and Timothy. And so those two gentlemen helped the Apostle Paul uh, plant this church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica being a, a town that was uh, experiencing a lot of growth. It was in a strategic location where it had all the different trade communities that had to go through this town. And so with that being said, and a lot of the business opportunities that were there, it was a multi-ethnic, multicultural town that existed in Thessalonica. The church itself that was founded consisted mostly of Gentiles rather than Jews. There were some Jews in there, but this was mostly a Gentile church. So the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy find this church, and the Bible says that they did this after three weeks of preaching in the synagogue. The Bible says that several people received Christ, and the church was formed. But it, it appears, according to 1 Thessalonians, that they were only there for three weeks. But in reality, they were there for more like four to six months. Now, the Apostle Paul intended to be there longer but because of the Jewish leaders being upset with what was happening, they began to falsely accuse them and say that the teachings that Paul and Silas and Timothy were doing was really undercutting the leadership as far as the government goes. So they took the teaching of Jesus as king. He is the only one worthy of our worship. And they were saying that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were saying that you should not respect and honor Caesar himself. And so they created this mob, and this mob went to go attack these men, but these men left town early, and we saw last week that the church itself was being persecuted. 
these men and their time there was cut short and the apostle Paul attempted on more than one occasion to go back to the church, but for whatever reason, he was not able to do so. And so we sends Timothy. Timothy goes and he checks on the congregation and in that checking, he realizes that they are growing, but again, they were a baby congregation. And so there was a lot of things that they were struggling with because they were not discipled properly that the Apostle Paul was concerned over, therefore prompting him to write this letter to the church of Thessalonica. This letter starts off by commending them for their faith. We saw that last week in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And then later on, eventually, the Apostle Paul addresses the biggest issue within the church, and that was their assumption that Christ was going to come back at any moment, which he is. We, we know that his return is imminent. But they assumed that being within the next few weeks or so, and they then ducked out on their responsibility as a Christian. As we used the example last week, it's like you going on vacation the next day, and so therefore you're checking out on work and everything the day prior to that. Hey, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm leaving. So that's the mindset that they had when it came to this Christian walk, and they struggled. And so the Apostle Paul writes this to clarify any miscommunications. Again, the church was not a bad church, but it was a young church. As we move into chapter 2, Paul takes the time in verses 1 through 12 to describe his own conduct and his own motivation towards the church or towards the people in Thessalonica. And in doing so, it's almost as if the Apostle Paul establishes his own credibility in writing this letter to the people. It's like the author giving a preface to a book, establishing their credibility of writing on that particular subject. It's like what he's doing in verses 1 through 12. He's getting ready to lay out some uh, encouragement, some admonishment to them. But before he does so, he helps the people understand, listen, I care deeply for you. And I'm writing this for no other motivation than to see you follow and grow in Christ. But as I mentioned towards the beginning of the message this week, I struggled with the direction in which God was leading the future of this church. I know that God has called us to plant a church here in Chapel Hill. And I praise the Lord for the growth that is happening but as I pondered the text this morning, what God revealed to me was really a reminder of what genuine God-honoring tr ministry truly is. And it's not, as we understand, as we preach every week, but sometimes you need to hear it again, it's not about the buildings, it's not about the programs, but it's all about Jesus Christ. And what our text does for us this morning is that it forces us to strip away all the frills of the ministry— the building programs, the, the building needs or the ministry programs, and to focus on the very fundamentals of God-honoring ministry. And so it's with that understanding in place that the title of our message this morning as we continue through this journey is the foundation of God-honoring ministry. Now, the Apostle Paul is very open and he's honest with the people in Thessalonica, which I believe every pastor should be, obviously with a balance. You don't want to give away every single struggle, because uh, the church family doesn't need to be burdened by that. But this is one of the attributes of the letter that makes it so beautiful, so relatable. The Apostle Paul is a human being. As Paul begins in chapter 2, he appeals to the discernment of the people, and he urges the people to observe his work and testimony and come to the conclusion themselves that he's there for no other motivation than to see them be more like Christ. So he begins verses 1 through 3 by delivering the foundational goal of the church. Paul says that even despite our persecution and conflict, our goal still remains the same. And our foundational goal, or this goal, brings us to our first point here this morning, which is the first goal of uh, God-honoring ministry, and that is the proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel. 
Paul begins in verse 1. He says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. What does the Apostle Paul mean by that? It's like, again, the Apostle Paul, and this is how I interpret it, the Apostle Paul is both encouraging the people, but also at the same time, he's like, he's like encouraging himself. Because I'm sure that he was discouraged. Think about it. There's a man who poured his life into this particular church, and his time there was cut short. He understood that that was God's sovereign call, but he was removed, and he didn't get to finish what he wanted to do with that church or what he desired to do, which, again, wasn't sinful, but he probably felt that he was somewhat of a failure. And so he probably has these attacks of Satan because Satan knows exactly what to do to chip in his mind, hey, this church is struggling because you left them and you failed in your ministry. That's why they're struggling. And so the Apostle Paul writes, ladies and gentlemen, you understand that our visit to you was not in vain because he's forcing them to focus on all the things that God had done to the church at this particular moment. Souls were being saved. Even though he was only there for a few months, souls are being saved and people were growing in Christ. See, the tendency is for us as Christians and human beings is to focus on the actual negativity of the trial that we are facing rather than look back at everything that God has done previously before that. So the Apostle Paul says, you understand if you were to look at the church that our visit here, our planting here was not in vain because praise God, a church was established here in Thessalonica because God saved people. And therefore, this church is being a shining light to this community, which probably has very little other light shining amongst it. And so he reminds them, you know that our visit here was not in vain because God has established a church. But he continues on in verse 2. He says, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Paul was referencing the events that occurred in Philippi. As we looked at last week, if you were to go to Acts chapter 17, and you can write that in your margin, Acts chapter 17 is the historical account of the planting of the church. And so you can actually do this through all the epistles of the Apostle Paul. You can look at uh, First and Second Corinthians. You can look at First and Second Timothy. You can look at First and Second Thessalonians. Those are letters that were written to churches, but Acts gives the historical account behind those letters being written. In Acts chapter 17, it talks about the events that took place in planting the church in Thessalonica. Prior to that, the Apostle Paul planted a church in Philippi. Philippi, uh, again, being an area that received a lot of growth, the church was established, and just as anything that's done for God, Satan's going to attack that. So the Apostle Paul and uh, Silas were arrested. They were imprisoned for their faith. They were falsely accused. They were wrongly accused, and actually they were wrongly treated because as Roman citizens, they should not have received the punishment that they actually received because they were Roman citizens. They had a level of... Um, uh, a level of ability to overcome certain things. So they were severely persecuted for their faith, but we saw that through that, even though they were in prison, God used that opportunity to save the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer in his household receives Christ. They escape from prison or are released from prison. They then go and plant in Thessalonica. The apostle Paul says in verse two, that you knew that we had suffered greatly for our faith but we still proclaim the gospel with boldness. And then he further adds in verse 3 that their exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. What he's saying here is not only did we boldly proclaim the gospel, this is how we did it. 
We lived a life that was clean. In other words, he's saying, you can look at my life. Not only am I telling you what to do through the word of God, I'm living it. He wasn't in immorality. He wasn't living a life of gross sin. His life on Sundays or his preaching on Sundays did not contradict how he lived throughout the week. He's asking them to examine that. And then he also says that his exhortation did not come from error. He was setting himself apart from the false teachers that were out there that were giving a false gospel. And he's saying that the authority that I have to preach the truth is coming from God. And so therefore put it to the test. And none of it has any error because it comes directly from God. And he also adds that word deceit, talking about the method of his ministry. The ministry that he has was authentic and it was real. And he wasn't doing it as a disguise to make money or pad his own pockets. It was all completely honest. But Paul was so motivated by the spread of the gospel that he rejoiced when the gospel was proclaimed by men that were not clean or authentic. He says, my ministry is clean and authentic, but I am so passionate and I am so, uh, 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 so desirous that the gospel be proclaimed that I'm excited and rejoicing when men who are not living that way are proclaiming the gospel and people are getting saved. You say, well, what are you talking about? Take your Bibles and flip them over to Philippians chapter 1. This letter occurs after 1 Thessalonians, but Philippians chapter 1, the letter of Philippians being written to the church in Philippi, all right, Paul, the Apostle Paul is under house arrest in Rome at this particular time, but they had sent him money, they had sent him resources, they had sent him somebody within their church himself to go and help the Apostle Paul. He writes this letter of thanksgiving. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12 down to verse 18, he says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. He's talking about the fact that he's been persecuted and he's in prison. Then he goes on and says, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ and most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. But then this is what he adds. Okay, before we get there, the apostle Paul understood and knew that there were certain preachers out there that rejoiced in the fact that the apostle Paul was contained because they were jealous of his ministry. They were jealous that he was planting churches and he was impacting lives because they were in it for their own glory. And so when they realized that the Apostle Paul was in prison and he could not go out and do those things, they rejoiced. The Apostle Paul knows that. And so he says, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Then he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. The apostle Paul says, listen, church family, I know that there are men out there that are preaching the gospel, but have a horrible heart in doing it. I know that they're using the call of God in order to sensationalize things and grow their kingdom or whatever, and I know they're doing it out of a selfish heart. And I'm not saying they're right in doing so, but he says, I'm going to leave that up to God. But if they're preaching the gospel and people are getting saved, praise God, people are getting saved. The Apostle Paul was that bold and that passionate about proclaiming the gospel. He didn't care if they grew underneath his ministry or somebody else's ministry that had false pretenses. He didn't care if his church was small and another church down the road was a mega church. As long as people were getting saved and the gospel was being preached, the Apostle Paul rejoiced. 
which shows us that when it comes to our church, the foundation of what we do must be the proclamation of the gospel. And no other, no other selfish ambition behind that. Because that's how people get saved. That's how people follow Christ. But here's the second one in verses 4 through 9. Paul dives in a little deeper and shows us the second foundation of ministry, and that is sacrificial living. We don't like to talk about that one as much because nobody wants to sacrifice their life. It goes against our human nature. But the Apostle Paul says in verse 4, he says, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God that tests our hearts. Once again, Paul is emphasizing his authority to preach the gospel based upon the commissioning of God. And again, this sets him apart from the rest of the false preachers. God commissioned him. That's why he's an apostle, to preach the word of God, and he did that. He continues in verses 5 through 6. He says, For neither... At any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul uses three different disclaimers in those phrases there to support his heart and purpose for the ministry in Thessalonica. First off, Paul says that he did not twist his words in order to manipulate people and flatter people to accomplish what Paul desired to accomplish within the ministry. Paul never minced words, and he never tried to evoke certain words in order to get a certain response. The apostle Paul says, I just preached the gospel and let God work. What he's showing in this particular phrase is that he sacrificed self-promotion. He says, I don't care about my kingdom being raised. So therefore, I'm not going to say certain words in order to, to manipulate the hearts of people in order to give more or in order to do certain things so that they can build up my kingdom. He says, no, I never did that. The second thing that he does, Paul says that he did not use certain words to make people financially contribute to his cause. This is what he uses or says in that phrase, for a cloak of covetousness. Okay, um, I try to be very, very careful in how I talk with people about anything like that because the last thing I ever want to do is say something so that people would be desirous to provide for me a certain benefit, all right? I, that, that, that would be the wrong use of the pulpit ministry of a pastor, is to manipulate the emotions of people in order to give more, which is why we've had a whole message about this when it came to the building fund. I want God to be able to work through your heart rather than the words that I use to manipulate you in a certain response. Because that would not be the role of a pastor, nor would that be the godly thing to do. The Apostle Paul says, I did not say things for a cloak of covetousness so that I could pad my own pockets. I didn't do it. George Mueller had a conviction when it came to his needs. He refused to ask people directly for his needs, and he would oftentimes pray and ask God to send the supplies, the help, the money, and the food, and never mention it to anyone else and just watch God provide. Now, I'm not saying that if a pastor gets up there and says, listen, we need to make the budget this month. or I, Church family needs to know that. But to use the pulpit in a way, or as Christians, to use certain words of the, the Bible in a way in order to selfishly um, pad your own resume or whatever fill in the blank would be a misuse of the scriptures. And the Apostle Paul says, I did not do it for a cloak of covetousness. But thirdly, he did not abuse his position as an apostle in efforts to build himself among the people. Paul says that he did not seek glory from men by using his position as an apostle. What he did is he sacrificed his, his desire for self-glory. And I know and understand that depending on the circles that you, grow up, that you grew up in, and it happens in any circle, there can be the desire for the pastor to become the ultimate authority within the church. 
almost subconsciously putting themselves on the same level as God. And that can be the desire for anyone. And I, I beg of you that you would pray that that would not be the case with me. But the Apostle Paul, being an apostle, says, I did not use my title to force anyone to do something outside of the will of God. I didn't do that. I just simply gave you the word of God. And so he's sacrificing everything. But Paul continues in verse 7. He says, we were gentle among you. And then he uses this analogy. He says, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own child. That's the attitude that he has towards the church. Now, I want you to think about this, this, the, the, the whole concept of this image here for just a moment. Right, why would Paul use this? Seems to be a little bit strange. But if you've ever been around a nursing mother or you have been a nursing mother yourself, and I'm not saying that because I understand that there's sometimes where, where ladies are not able to nurse. So I'm not, I'm not saying that they are less loving to their child than ones that can. But if you think about that whole act itself, what is going on? The, the, the mother is literally giving, like literally giving her body, her own self for the nourishment of that baby. And when that baby doesn't eat like the baby desires or the mother desires for the baby to eat, the mother feels rejected and broken over the inability in her mind to take care of that child. When Kaysen was first born, many of you know this story, Kaysen would, he was, it, it, he would not eat would not eat. It wasn't like he wouldn't nurse. He, like, he just wouldn't eat, period, which is completely strange. He wouldn't eat formula. He wouldn't nurse for my wife. We had to resort to taking a syringe filled with milk while he was sleeping, putting it in his mouth, and squirting it in there. That's how we fed him. It was crazy. The doctors didn't know what to do. Uh, they didn't know how to take care of him. But my wife experienced something that I will never fully understand, and there was many nights in which she would just sit there and cry because she felt that there was not an ability within herself as a mom to take care of her baby. She wanted to nourish that baby. The Apostle Paul says, as a nursing mother, we nourished and cared for the church. The Apostle Paul says, we've given everything because we deeply desire and love you that you would grow in Christ. We gave you everything. Apostle Paul says that we sacrifice. Now, our tendency to read this is, well, that's what pastors should do. Well, no, it actually applies to all Christians within the church. Look up Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. We won't have to take the time to read that. Uh, but Romans chapter 12, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, talks about giving our body as a living sacrifice before the Lord. Okay, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, not a play on words, but it's replacing the Old Testament sacrificial system because Jesus did that. But rather than sacrificing animals because it was all done through Jesus, we now live our bodies or give our bodies as a sacrifice before the Lord. Well, what does that mean? The Bible says in Romans chapter 6 that we yield our members over to his control. In other words, every aspect of our body, our will, our, our, our emotions, our desires, everything that is within ourselves, we give that over to the Lord and we say, you're in control, you have everything. And our tendency as Christians is to compartmentalize certain aspects of Christianity to give God certain chunks of our life rather than our entire life. So for example, <laughs> we're here at church on Sunday morning. If we're not careful, from 10.30 until 11.30 is God's time. If it goes over 10 minutes, five, or 5 minutes, whatever, 20 minutes, we're upset because now it's checking into our time because we compartmentalize God to have this certain time. All right, God, you have this much money every single 
uh, part of my life. This is the budget that I'm going to give you. And it's oftentimes the leftovers of what we had raised that month. So God, this is the leftovers. But the moment that something comes in our life that ends up being an expense that we, that we, that we weren't anticipating, what's often the first thing that goes, well, God, it's your money that's going to go away, which is funny because it's all God's anyway. And so when we, when we give God, like if we're not careful, when we give God our money, when we give God certain parts of our life, it's like, God, here's yours. I hope you're happy. When in reality, he owns all of it anyway. So it's not like he needs our money. Our giving of our money and our giving of our talents and our abilities is us saying, God, you're in control. You're preeminent. You take it out of worship for me. And I throw myself into this category when it comes to, I want to be humble. I want you to think I have everything figured out. But I have a tendency to give God most of my life, but there are certain parts of my life that I don't give him because I still want that myself. The Apostle Paul says that with ministry, God-honoring ministry, proclaim the gospel. Number two, you've got to live sacrificially. You are yielding your entire body over to Christ, your entire will. But then he closes out with one more final point, and that is this. A discipleship of the believers. So you, you live sacrificially, you proclaim the gospel, but there's going to be different levels of spiritual growth within the church. So we as a church body have the responsibility to help them become more like Christ. Look at what he says in verses 10 through 12. He says, You are witnesses in God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we have behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you walk worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. See what he did there? He went from nursing mom now to a father. What is the Apostle Paul doing? He's saying that there's two levels of your relationship within the ministry. First off, you sacrifice yourself like a nursing mom does. She's giving of her body to her baby for the nourishment as that baby continues to grow. But a father has a different level of sacrifice with the father. They can't do that like a mom does. God didn't design them that way. But what is a father's role according to the scriptures? It's to lead in the instruction and exhortation of the family. They are to lead in the discipline of the family. Not that the mom doesn't do it, but the father's role is to lead the family in doing so. So the apostle Paul says, we're like a nursing mother and sacrificing ourselves and loving you and nourishing you and caring for you, but we're also like the father in proclaiming the word of God so that in our exhortation, we are, we are encouraging you through the word of God to be more like Christ. There needs to be two different levels to that. Because if you are going through life and you are caring and nourishing and caring, 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 but through that care you're never talking about the hard stuff, then you're not doing fully what God has called us to do as a church family. You live sacrificially, but you also disciple the believers. And so as we close and we move into our time of communion here this morning, this is how I was encouraged this week. God may be using the lack of open door for what we see right now regarding a building, or he may open it later on, but he may be using that to force us to, to think instead of praying specifically for one thing, but to step back and say, God, what do you want us to do in relationship to what is truly a God-honoring ministry? So it's almost like God saying, Brandon, proclaim the gospel. Church family, proclaim the gospel. In other words, share the hope of Jesus with everybody you come in contact with, that God opens up the door. Live sacrificially and disciple the believers. You can do that anywhere. 
I think sometimes we get caught up, at least myself, in thinking that a building is what's going to provide ultimate growth for a church, although some aspects of that helps. But in reality, we can do God-honoring ministry anywhere. We can do it under a tent, for crying out loud. And so may this be an encouragement for us that we would not get so caught up on things, but focus on what is truly important when it comes to the ministry, and that is proclaiming the gospel, discipling the believers, and living sacrificially. Dear Heavenly Father,